disagreed with the free grace view because I think the issue is clearly salvation, not just rewards. And I, but I didn't say where I disagree with Wilson's view. The Arminian view, I'm not, and I'm happy to do this because I'll have, we'll, we'll do some Q&A today uh, as well. But the Arminian view, uh, I, I, maybe I'll just say something now. McKnight's, McKnight does a great job in his article explaining Hebrews 6. But also, you have to explain the promises in Scripture as well. And he just ignores that problem. I mean, in other words, there aren't only warnings in Scripture, but promises. And one of our jobs when we read Scripture is to put these two, two things together. How do you correlate them? Well, McKnight doesn't bother. <laughs> Maybe he does elsewhere. I haven't seen where he does it elsewhere. But but that's exactly what we have to do. And the Scripture promises he who began a good work in us will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. Well, what does that mean? If, if, if a person can actually fall away, well, I, I, I think the text is such, the promises are, are such, that since he began the good work in you, that is, he granted you faith, then he will complete that faith, that's the promise, until the day of Christ Jesus. So the problem with the Arminian view is it doesn't explain well the promises of, uh, of uh, preservation in the Scripture. So, you know, I've said something really briefly about all those views, happy to take any questions or comments. But now, now I want to return to my view. So the warnings are a means, the warnings are a means by which the elect are preserved until the end. It's very important to recognize that the warnings are prospective. They're not declarations. They're not retrospective, right? Prospective is right. You're walking into life. You're walking and you're, and as you go, there's a warning sign. Do go this way, go that way, watch out for falling rock or whatever it says. Retrospective is when you're looking back and you're, and you're considering what already happened. But warnings are future oriented. So the, 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 the warnings are just that. They're warnings. They're, 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 they're looking ahead in life. So, you know, if we, if, if you say to a person, if you drink poison, you will die, that's a conditional statement. That's not a declarative statement. How many people read the conditional statements in scripture as if they're declarations? But they're not declarations. They're conditions. The consequence of the condition only becomes a reality if you fulfill the condition. So the warnings in Scripture, the warnings in Hebrews, to be more specific, they do not rebuke the readers for falling away. And I think a lot of people read the warnings in that way. They are not a rebuke, they're a warning. The warnings urge readers not to fall away from Christ. Keep, Keep drinking from the fountain of living waters. They're saying that the warnings are like advice from a from a marriage counselor and a marriage counselor meeting with a couple that's still together and you're urging them and you're instructing them and you're admonishing them and you're encouraging them stay together. Right. You're not rebuking them for separating. They haven't separated. You're encouraging them. Stay together. Keep this marriage going. My my daughter, Anna, ran uh, cross-country in uh, high school. 
and college and her high school coach, anyway, uh, her cross-country races, he would meet her, and he wasn't the only coach that did this, if you've been at these races, he would meet her at key junctures of the race and would encourage her. Uh, the warnings work like that, right? He would, he would say to her, you're going too fast. You went out way too fast. Or you got to speed up. <laughs> or this is what you need, need. Or you're doing just right. But do this for the rest of the race, right? Giving exhortation, instructions. That's, that's how the warning passages work. Now, what's, what's the big objection to the view I'm proposing? The objection I've heard 500 million thousand times. Maybe that's a hyperbole. But the, the objection is, so, so let, me, let, me, let me restate your view. God gives us warnings. If we fall away, we'll be damned. But no one will fall away. Right? That's what you're saying. Who belongs to the people of God, who's truly alike. No one will fall away. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. What's the point of that? We don't even need a warning then. It's, it's, it's completely besides the point. That, uh, I mean, what a waste of our time. What's the point? I mean, even many Reformed people have said that to me. That's why the almost Christian view, I think, is so popular in Reformed circles. So are the warnings drained of significance if the consequence, damnation, cannot and will not be recognized in the lives of the elect? If no believer will drink the poison, why do we have to tell him not to drink it? My argument is the very way that question is formulated reads the warnings abstractly. That's a key element of my argument. It's an abstraction. Abstractions may be right, but they may not be right. In other words, the very way the question is formulated assumes that the warnings don't play a function in you being preserved. But that's my very point. The warnings are the means, and I'm not, and, I, and I'm saying Scripture saying not just accidentally. The warnings are the very means by which scriptures, by which believers are preserved. Therefore, they're essential. That's how warnings work. You know, last um, January, not 15, 16 months ago, for the first time in my life, some friends took us to the Grand Canyon, and I was peering over the Grand Canyon, and uh, the thought occurred to me, wouldn't it be fun to jump? And yeah, it would be for a while, right? <laughs> you know? Why didn't I jump? Because I thought of the consequence, right? I thought that would be amazing to go down there, but I didn't even get close to doing it, Right? Because you think of the consequence. So the warning in my mind, right, kept me, kept me from jumping. That, that's how the warnings work. I'm a very strange, weird, bizarre person, etc., etc. Ask my wife, other people who know me. But another thing I've thought of is, wouldn't it be kind of fun to drive with your eyes closed? You know? <laughs> it would be kind of fun, you know? But I don't do it, right? Because I don't want to get in a wreck. So what, what is it that's stopping me from doing that? The, the warning, 
right? Of the consequence of what would what would happen. So, of course, the main, the most important thing are not my illustrations, but the scriptures. Are there examples of this in the scriptures? Some of these scriptures, the first one I'm going to use is Acts 27. This is an analogous example. In other words, in this this passage, in this passage, we're um, we're uh, we're uh, talking about physical preservation, but I'm arguing that what happens in terms of physical preservation is also true of spiritual preservation. So Acts 27, verse 21. So this is the shipwreck story. In Acts 27, Paul's on his way to Rome, but but they sail too late in the in the year from one of the islands, right? Paul told them, don't go. Do not go. Do not do this. And um, they did. They did. They didn't follow Paul's advice. Is it, I've always, this is such a fascinating thing to me, this story, isn't it? Because Paul is a prisoner on the ship, and he's virtually like the captain, telling everybody what to do. People listen to him. He's just a born leader. You know, the person I've met who's the most like that that I've ever met I've kind of tried to imagine him on a ship as Mark Dever. Somehow I think if Mark were on a ship and a prisoner, somehow he'd end up telling everyone what to do, you know, in a good, in a good way, in a good way. You know, the Apostle Paul is sort of like that. So um, anyway, so we pick it up at verse 21 of chapter 27. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me. By the way, this is free for you. This is my, this is your verse for every members meeting you have, right? <laughs> Just stand up and say, I have a verse for you as congregation. Men, you should listen to me. And there you, there you got it. The whole, I promise you the whole meeting will go fine. Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. Anyway, so there he is again, right? This is the prisoner talking, right? Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. By the way, Paul says, I just wanted you to know I was right. We shouldn't have done this. But life goes on. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. There's the promise, right? No loss of life. Why does Paul say that? Is he just making this up out of his own mind? Look at the next verse. For this very night, verse 23, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Incidentally, I just got to say, isn't that great that Paul's faith comes out in such a powerful way? What does he say about his own Christian life? I belong to this God. I worship this God. What a great statement. He said... What did the angel say? Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. In other words, Paul, you're not going to die in this shipwreck. You're going to make it to Rome. You're going to testify before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So why does Paul say there'll be no loss of life? The angel told him, an angel told him, not a single person will die. So the promise is universal. All. So take heart, verse 25, men. For I have faith in God, it will be exactly as I have been told. So, not mainly like I've been told, and it'll be exactly as I've been told. It, it's going to be fulfilled. So the promise, the promise is uh, quite remarkable, isn't it? Every single person is going to live. So, what would you have done? I, well, what would I have done? If I had been given that promise, I would have gone down in the hold of the ship, turned on Netflix and said, got some popcorn, 
and watched some movies and said, let's wait for this whole thing to turn out. Because now I know everybody's going to live. I don't have to do a thing from now on. But that's not what happened, right? Verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat, right, the little skiff, the little, the little dinghy, the, the, the small boat that was attached to get away, they, were, they had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. So the sailors wanted to escape, didn't they? Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. If you let these sailors go, you will die. <laughs> Isn't that remarkable? Just after he's had the promise. But Paul did not view the warning as superfluous, did he? He didn't, he didn't say, well, we just let, the warning is vital to uh, secure the promise God has given. The warning is the means by which the promise is realized in everyday life. Paul recognized means are important. Here's another way of putting it. One of my very good friends, well, Ardell Kennedy, who wrote the race set before me, race set before us with me, Ardell said to me, he said, the reason I wear a seatbelt is because I am a Calvinist. Exactly. <laughs> Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So they cut away the sh- ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Okay, there's one passage. Here's another one. The Lord's Prayer. Right? The Lord's Prayer, micro as a Catholic, you know, as Protestants, sometimes Protestants don't pray this as much as we should. I mean, after all, the Lord taught us this prayer. That should, it should be a regular feature of our prayer life. You know, it can be prayed thoughtlessly and mechanically, of course. But on the other hand, it should be a regular feature of our prayer life. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3 says, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. It's a very interesting study, by the way, of the statements in Paul where he says the Lord is faithful. All of those statements, I would argue, there's four or five of them, all of those statements, I would argue, are about preservation. In other words, in every context in which Paul says the Lord is faithful, we find a promise that we will be preserved to the end. And, and of course, here's one of those. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. In other words, the Lord is faithful. You will not commit apostasy because what is Satan wanting to do? First Peter 5, he, he goes about as a roaring lion seeking to devour the faith of the elect. He wants to destroy the faith of God's people. But Paul says the Lord is faithful. That's not going to happen to you. However, when we come to the Lord's prayer, we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Why do we need to pray that prayer if we already have a promise, right? We have a promise. We'll be guarded from the evil one. God will fulfill that promise, infallibly fulfill that promise. But the prayer, the prayer is an important means by which that promise is realized. The the, the prayer, we we don't say, well, it doesn't matter if we pray then. The, The promise 
and the means by which that promise comes to pass are not enemies, but they're, but they're friends. They belong to one another. One, another passage. Mark 13.20. I realize this passage is interpreted in different ways. This is an eschatological discourse. I think what I'm saying is true pretty much whatever interpretation you t- take. But I pick it up at Mark 13.20. If the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. I think he means spiritual salvation there. Some people don't think it means physical. You can make up your mind on that. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. That's, that's why I think he's thinking about spiritual salvation. He shortened the days for the sake of the elect. But it could be physical. But anyway, the next verse is clearly talking about spiritual salvation, I think, or at least involves it. And then if anyone were to say to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray if possible the elect. If you believe in a false Christ, you're not saved, right? If you believe in a Messiah who's not the true Messiah, if you believe in a false Christ, you don't belong to God. So what does he say in verse 21? Don't believe if someone says, here is the Christ, or there is the Christ, because these false Christs and prophets will perform signs and wonders, whether you take that to be A.D. 70 or the end or both, It still applies, doesn't it, principially, to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But what does he say? It's not possible. It is not possible, clearly, right, from the way the verse is written, it is not possible for the elect to be deceived. And nevertheless, Jesus says what? Don't believe it. He warns us. Don't Give in to that. Verse 23, be on guard. He doesn't say, well, you won't believe it. Don't worry about it. (laughs) He says, you won't believe it. Be on guard. Because I've told you this in advance. Verse 33, same discourse. Be on guard. Keep awake. You don't know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to you all, stay awake. Strong, strong admonitions to be alert until the end. And yet he promises none of the elect will be deceived. So, three examples. I could give more. So the warnings are a means by which the elect are preserved. Now, I do it again. Are the warnings superfluous? Are they really necessary? Yes, I understand. If you're an Arminian, God bless you. If you're an Arminian, I understand that you're not going to agree with my view. Of course. I mean, for a number of reasons. You've made a number of decisions about the scriptures. But I want to argue that what I'm saying about the warnings fits with how a Calvinist understands our salvation. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God elected us 
from the foundation of the world. Romans 9, God chose Jacob before he was born or had done anything good or bad. God's election is not of works, but is based on the one who calls, right? Romans 9, our election is not based on works. It's not based on foreseen faith even. He didn't look ahead and see that Jacob was going to believe. It wasn't based on anything Jacob would do. Faith is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? By grace you are saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God that no one should boast. So, anybody who's reformed, that's what we believe. I think most of you, maybe all of you in here believe that. That's what we believe about salvation. God elects. God elects before we're born. God grants us faith. God, God doesn't foresee that we'll have faith. He causes us to have faith. But when the gospel is proclaimed, what do we say to people? We do not say, we do not say, it doesn't matter if we preach the gospel. We don't say that. We don't say, all of those who are elect, please come forward. Right? We don't say that. We don't say that. We say what the apostles say. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Is the summons to believe irrelevant that the elect will truly believe? No, no, absolutely not. It's not irrelevant. It is not irrelevant because it's the means God has ordained by which the elect come to faith. Is the means vital and necessary? It's absolutely vital and necessary, isn't it? Preaching the gospel is the means God uses to bring people to faith and repentance. Is belief a condition people must fulfill to be saved and repentance? Absolutely it's a condition. If you don't believe, you won't be saved. But God promises by his grace that he will give us the strength. It's his work. It's by his work that we meet the condition. Do we meet the condition? We meet the condition, but not because of anything in ourselves, finally, but because of God's grace. All I'm saying is the warnings are understood exactly the same way. God has promised the elect will persevere. It's an absolute promise. But that doesn't eliminate the need to keep believing and to endure to the end. So we see it all over Scripture. Is, is our continuing faith a condition? Absolutely, it's a condition. But God promises, doesn't he, by his grace to strengthen us so that condition is met. We must believe until the end to be saved. God promises us and warns us to keep believing until the end. Okay. Now, what about those who do fall away? What about those who do fall away? Well, I'm arguing the warnings in Hebrews, remember, they're perspective, right? Those who fall away, that's a different question. That's a retrospective question. That's looking back. That's So, you know, my, the cross-country coach would yell instructions to Anna during the race, perspective about the race to come, but after the race, they might get together and talk about it. A retrospective analysis of the race. And of course, if you like sports, right, there's all kinds of retrospective 
analyses going on about games that are played, right? And uh, at least I, I have to watch it. I don't waste a lot of time on that because I love watching it. It's interesting. I like the prospective too. It's all, it's all interesting. So the retrospective view, though, is clearly taught in Scripture, isn't it? 1 John 2.19, right? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be plain that they all are not of us. That's a retrospective view, clearly. Those, those who fall away, certainly. Those who fall away, they never belong to us. Clearly, Scripture teaches that. I'm not denying that. I think that's totally true. Not Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, this is retrospective, verse 22, right? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Isn't that fascinating? Because he doesn't say I knew you for a while, but now I don't. He says, I never knew you. You never belonged to me. Even when you were doing all those things, you were never mine. 2 Timothy 2.18. Some have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. I just got to say this. Can I just throw in this one word about these people who are complete preterists? You know, that everything happened in 70 AD, including that Jesus came again. Um, Uh, that's a very strange view, isn't it? And I said to one person who was a complete preterist, well, what about 2 Timothy 2.18? And he goes, well, that was written before AD 70. So I said to him, so you mean that scripture only applied to us for six years? Isn't that very strange? You know, after AD 70, you can say the resurrection already happened. I think that's pretty bizarre. Anyway. They say the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. That's the same word, upsetting, for the tables Jesus turned over in the temple. What about the faith that's upset, though? God's firm foundation stands bearing a seal. The Lord knows those who are his. So, in other words, if someone's faith is upset, if someone falls away, the Lord knows those who are his. They weren't his, right? Same thing, retrospective. 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. That's a very fascinating verse, isn't it? The early church fathers quoted it all the time. There were a lot of heresies, factions, heresies. And the early church fathers said, and I think rightly interpreting this, the divisions in the church and then some who separated and fell away. It, you could recognize who was a genuine Christian or not. That's retrospective. That's retrospective. I mean, please God, that won't happen to anyone in this room. But if it does, if it does happen to someone, we'd look back and say, that person was never genuine in the first place. How do we know that? Because they defected. So when I'm saying, what's the function of the warnings? They're prospective admonitions. But I'm not denying, I'm not denying for a moment that there are retrospective passages in Scripture. I'm just saying that's not what Hebrews 6 is doing or Hebrews 10 or Hebrews 2. That's what 2 Peter 2 is doing. That's what 1 John 2 is doing. There are, there are retrospective passages, certainly, but that's not, that's not what the warning passages are doing because they're warnings. So how do the warnings function? 
They're not written to quench assurance or to cause introspection. There's a place for introspection. But that's not what the passages in Hebrews are doing. The passages are not written to cause a person to turn upon themselves and wonder, this is how I think Hebrews 6 is usually preached in Reformed circles, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? They turn a person within. But I would argue that's introspection, but the passage is perspective. It's not calling on the writers to introspect, but to act. When my kids were little, I would say to them, don't run into the street, right, if they were playing. When I say that urgently to a child, I'm not asking the child to, to query, am I alive, right? Am I alive? That's how a lot of people preach the warning passages. Am I really alive? No, I just don't want them to run in the street. I don't want them to get killed. That's a very different function of the passage, right? Of course, the authors knew some did not belong to God. Of course, there was a mixed audience. But here's my question. This is an exegetical issue. Is the description in Hebrews 6 describing believers or not? That's the issue, to be precise. I've been in this discussion many times. People say, well, wasn't there a mixed audience? Of course, of course. But the issue is, are those described in Hebrews 6 Christians or not? Because if they're Christians, he's warning Christians. Were there some there that weren't Christians? Of course. But he's not asking that question. That's not the function of the passage. So the warnings stimulate believers to keep trusting. Of course, those who don't heed the warnings are not part of Christ's flock. I believe that the writers thought that the warnings would be effective. Galatians 5.10, remember I mentioned earlier, the strongest warning in Galatians comes in chapter 5, verse 2. But in verse 10, what does he say of the same chapter? I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. Paul is confident that the warnings will produce in them perseverance. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. Right after the strong warning, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He is sure that the warning will produce the desired fruit because he believes that they belong to God. So how does this fit? With uh, Hebrews 6, he addresses the congregation as a whole as Christians. He addresses them as Christians. He's not concerning himself in the warning. He's not concerning himself in the warning about whether there are false believers there. That's not his purpose in the passage. That's not the function of the passages grammatically. So I want to argue the warnings are part of the gospel. The warnings are part of the gospel. They say, hey, here, this is what it means to keep trusting in Jesus Christ by heeding those warnings. So here's another way of putting it. How does Hebrews 11 fit into the warnings? Perfectly. Because the other side of the warning is believe. The way you heed the warning is what? By trusting in God. 
Not by, not by working for God. So are the warnings are called to works? No, they're called to trust. Of course there are Esau's among the Jacobs. Of course. But that's not, that's not the function of the warning passages. So I think, um, I think I'm just going to do two more things. I'm going to read two things, and then I'll open it up for any comments or questions. And then, you know, if we're done, we're done. So, um, but feel free to disagree with me. By the way, you know, I mean, I'm a teacher. I have people who disagree with me all the time. I mean, it's just like this part of our lives, right? I mean, that's true for pastors too, right? But we're all used to it. Um, usually I just take my water bottle and throw it at them. No, I'm just kidding. So, um, so I have a quote here from Charles Spurgeon the great prince of preachers, and then I have a quote from Bavink, okay? So uh, Spurgeon, Spurgeon, of course, uh, writes in that, that such a powerful way. Bavink, of course, is a, was a great uh, reformed theologian. Uh, I, I should say, maybe you're all very familiar with Bavink, but since you're here, can I urge you all, uh, just in the last few years, I've read all four volumes of Bavink's Dogmatics, and they're just so great. He, his, it is so deep and powerful. I don't agree with every single thing in there. I mean, he believes in infant baptism. I don't. But that, those volumes are fantastic. And, uh, they're, you know, they're, they, I think they just, if you haven't read them, I think they'll strengthen and deepen you. Anyway, let's hear from Spurgeon. They're, they're both talking about uh, the functional warnings and, and Spurgeon in particular about Hebrews 6. First then, We answer the question, who are the people spoken of here? Now, he's asking in Hebrews 6, to whom is the passage addressed? If you read Dr. Gill, Dr. Owen, and almost all the eminent Calvinistic writers, they all of them assert that these persons are not Christians. They say that enough is said here to represent a man who is a Christian externally, but not enough to give the portrait of a true believer. Now, it strikes me, they would not have said this if they had not had some doctrine to uphold. For a child reading this passage would say that the persons intended by it must be Christians. If the Holy Spirit intended to describe Christians, I do not see that he could have used more explicit terms than there are here. How can a man be said to be enlightened in the taste of the heavenly gift than to be made partaker of the Holy Ghost without being a child of God, with all deference to these learned doctors, and I admire and love them all, I humbly conceive that they allowed their judgments to be a little warped when they said that. And I think I shall be able to show that none but true believers are here described. Now, I don't go into Spurgeon's exegesis, right? I just say, Spurgeon held the view I'm arguing here. Spurgeon argued that those addressed were Christians, and then he goes off and explains that, well, we don't. We don't need to look at that. But now, now I, I skip ahead, and now I consider what Spurgeon says. What's the use of the passage? And here he goes. But, says one, you say they cannot fall away. What is the use of putting this if in like a bugbear to frighten children? Or like a ghost that can have no existence? My learned friend, who art thou that repliest against God? If God has put it in, he has put it in for wise reasons and for excellent purposes. I just love that answer, right? Always trust God first instead of your own reason. 
Let me show you why, though, he says. First, O Christian, it is put in to keep thee from falling away. God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by the use of means. And one of these is the terrors of the law, showing them what would happen if they were to fall away. There is a deep precipice. What is the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why to tell him that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. In some old castle, there is a deep cellar where there is a vast amount of fixed air and gas which would kill anybody who went down. What does the guide say? If you go down, you will never come up alive. Who thinks of going down? The very fact of the guy telling us what the consequences would be keeps us from it. Our friend puts away from us a cup of arsenic. He does not want us to drink it. But he says, if you drink it, it will kill you. Does he suppose for a moment that we should drink it? No. He tells us the consequences, and he is sure we will not do it. So God says, my child, if you fall over this precipice, you will be dashed to pieces. What does the child do? He says, this is great, Spurgeon. He says, Father, keep me. Keep me. Hold thou me up and I shall be safe. It leads the believer to greater dependence on God, to a holy fear and caution because he knows that if he were to fall away, he could not be renewed. And he stands far away from that great gulf because he knows that if he were to fall into it, there would be no salvation for him. So that's Spurgeon. Now I'm going to read Bavink. So Spurgeon's the popular version. Bavink's the scholarly one. They're saying the same thing, but I just love how Bavink says it as well. I may, I'll probably interrupt Bavink and make a few comments. Now the question, says Bavink, with respect to this doctrine of perseverance, is not whether those who have obtained a true saving faith could not, if left to themselves, lose it again by their own faults and sins, nor whether sometimes all the activity, boldness, and comfort of faith actually ceases, and faith itself goes into hiding under the cares of life and the delights of the world. In other words, Bobbing says, the question isn't whether we'd fall away if we were left to ourselves. Of course we would. And he says also the question isn't whether sometimes our Christian life goes way down. Sometimes it does. He goes, that's not what I'm talking about. Of course, believers, if God abandoned them, would fall away. And of course, sometimes our faith sinks. That's not the question, though, he says. The question is whether God upholds, continues, and completes the work of grace he has begun. Or whether he sometimes permits it to be totally ruined by the power of sin. Well, we know where Bobbing stands. He never permits it to be totally ruined. He always completes it, doesn't he? Perseverance, says Bob Inc., is a gift of God. He watches over it and sees to it that the work of grace is continued and completed. But now here it comes. This is great stuff. I love this. He, he, he does not, however, do this apart from believers, but through them. In regeneration and faith, he grants a grace that as such bears an inadmissible character. It can't be revoked, right? He grants a life that is by nature eternal. He bestows the benefits of calling, justification, and glorification that are mutually and unbreakably interconnected. Romans 8, right? Foreknown, predestined, called, 
justified, glorified, mutually and unbreakably interconnected. All of the above-mentioned admonitions, so he's going to the warnings now, all of the above-mentioned admonitions and threats that Scripture addresses to believers therefore do not prove a thing against the doctrine of perseverance. They are rather the way in which God himself concerned... Let me say that again. They are rather the way in which God himself confirms his promise and gift through believers. They are the means by which perseverance in life is realized. After all, perseverance is also not coercive, but as a gift of God impacts humans in a spiritual manner. I love that sentence because what is Bumping saying? We're changed. We know we're not just we're not robots, right? God is changing us. He's it's not he's not he's not just externally coercing us. He's changing us. In a spiritual manner. Beautiful beautiful way of putting it. It is precisely God's will. By admonition and warning morally to lead believers to heavenly blessedness. And by the grace of the Holy Spirit to prompt them willingly to persevere in faith and love. It is therefore completely mistaken to reason from the admonitions of Holy Scripture to the possibility of a total loss of grace. This conclusion is illegitimate, as when, in the case of Christ, people infer from his temptation that he was able to sin. Jesus' temptations were real, and he was impeccable. He could not sin. That doesn't mean the temptations were not real. The certainty of the outcome does not render the means superfluous, but is inseparably connected with them in the decree of God. Paul knew with certainty that in the case of shipwreck, No one would lose his life. Yet he declares, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Well, thank you. And any comments, questions, whatever you want to say. We can do questions for a few minutes if you want to. What was the source of the 